But sadly, the people in America have become like the people in Jeremiah's day. Jeremiah laments that the people in his day had lost their ability to blush. And the things that once embarrass Americans no longer makes them blush. And listen, if we don't help our children to stay morally pure by understanding some of these truths that we'll be covering in these next five weeks, then they will just fall with the culture. They will go in the direction that the culture is going. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We are beginning a new series on morality and moral excellence. Today's culture is in a moral decline, and we are seeing the judgment of God being revealed before our very eyes. Over the next two weeks, Pastor Carl has prepared six special messages that address how Christians can live morally pure in today's society. Today's sermon is entitled, Avoiding Moral Failure. Please join us in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1, as we begin. Take God's word this morning, would you, and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11. I want to begin a brand new series on the subject of morality, on moral excellence. If you're here for the first time, we have uh, just completed the book of James, and so we're between books. Typically, if you've been here for some years, you will notice I do a New Testament book, an Old Testament book, New Testament, Old Testament. We're called to teach the whole counsel of Scripture. And we have finished James, but we're between books. And before we start our next book, don't ask me what it is. I never reveal it. I like it to be a surprise. But before we get to it, God has put on my heart some issues that I believe He wants me to cover. And some of you have written me and asked me some specific questions. And you can see the subject this morning is avoiding moral failure. I hope to do at least five messages, maybe more, in this series on morality. I hope you know that the devil, Satan, the prince of the power of the air, the prince of this world, the evil one, the one who energizes the world system, he is working in a humanistic, evolutionistic, self-centered, rationalistic way in which to convince people that anything goes. And so our children are being taught, beginning in the first grade, that we were not created by God, but we evolved from animals. And so we shouldn't be surprised if we evolved from animals that people would live like animals. And so starting in the middle school, even in our, our own county, and in some expressions even before that, children are being taught about how to have safe sex, they're taught that homosexuality and transgenderism is normal and should be embraced. These are evils on our culture. God is judging our nation. There's different kinds of judgment in Scripture. There's cataclysmic judgment that would be like Noah's flood or God's destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. There's the coming tribulation judgment, a time that is unequaled in the history of the world. And Jesus said, had not those days been cut short, no flesh would have survived. There's eternal judgment in a place called the lake of fire, called hell, Gehenna. But there's also the judgment of God that is being revealed, current day judgment. 
And Paul describes it in Romans 1, and if you're not familiar with Romans 1, it is a commentary on America. We are seeing the very things that God describes in Romans chapter 1. There's a popular website. They claim now to have 70 million users. It's up 20 million since the last time I checked. It's called Ashley Madison. And the slogan is, life is short, have an affair. But they lie in their advertising. The reality that life is short is a misnomer because God created you for an eternity. Eternity is forever. And you will someday meet the living God and you will spend an eternity either with Him in a place that He wants you to go. It's called heaven. It's called the New Jerusalem. Or you will spend an eternity in hell. But sadly, the people in America have become like the people in Jeremiah's day. Jeremiah laments that the people in his day had lost their ability to blush. And the things that once embarrassed Americans no longer makes them blush. And listen, if we don't help our children to stay morally pure by understanding some of these truths that we'll be covering in these next five weeks, then they will just fall with the culture. They will go in the direction that the culture is going. So here in first, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 11, we have the sad story of King David who commits adultery. You say, can a child of God commit adultery? Of course he can. Can a child of God commit adultery and not suffer? Absolutely not. Now, I love King David because in both the Old and the New Testament, he's called a man after God's own heart. And there's much that we can learn and much that we can admire from this great king. He was a brave young man who fought off the lion, who fought off the bear, who was willing to face Goliath, that huge human being. He was a great musician. He gave us many of the psalms, some of which Matt leads us in worship on Sunday mornings. Some that you sing in your own quiet times or you read and pour over. He was a great king. He was a great administrator. He was a great leader. He was a great warrior. He was a man of integrity when he had the opportunity to put a knife through Saul's heart. He just cut off the edge of his robe to show that he would not harm God's anointed. He's one of the most talented and noble men found in Scripture. And yet David fell into this deep, dark, devious, evil sin that this chapter records. And so when God paints the portrait of a man in Scripture, he paints it warts and all. He doesn't paint just the highlights. He gives us a full picture of a person's life. And that portrait begins to unfold here in the first five verses of chapter 11. So that's where I want to begin reading. I hope you have a Bible. If you don't have one, come to the next Meet the Pastor, and we will get you on. 2 Samuel chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Then it happened in the spring at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. Now when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful in appearance. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the daughter of Uriah the Hittite? David sent messengers and took her. And when she came to him, he lay with her. 
And when, he had purif- and when she had purified herself from uncleanness, she returned to her house. The woman conceived, and she sent and told David and said, I am pregnant. David commits the sin of adultery, and then Bathsheba conceives. And then God gives the rest of the story as he unfolds the consequences of sin. You say, Pastor Carl, what does this message have to do with me? Everything. Because there are none listening that are greater than David. Not to mention the Bible warns in 1 Corinthians 10, Therefore let him who thinks he stands be careful lest he fall. When you begin to think, Oh, but I could never commit this sin that David committed, then you are tempting the devil to tempt you. And you have already taken the first step in a downward trend. I mean, none of us here are more gifted, more nobler, more humble, more sensitive than this man of God. And yet he entangles himself in the sin of adultery. So there are three timeless principles that I want us to learn about David's sin so that we can avoid it that we might stay morally pure in these days in which we live. If you're using your note-taking outline, the very first point on the outline concerns the carelessness of David's sin. The carelessness of David's sin. Solomon warns, keep your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. God says from the heart flow the very issues, the springs of life. So watch over your heart. And unfortunately, David, the man of God, let his guard down. He became careless. And in the first few verses, we see two areas in which he was very careless. First, David's carelessness was rooted in his idleness. His carelessness was rooted in his idleness. Notice how verse 1 begins. Then it happened in the spring, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Amnon and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. So God is giving us the setting that led up to David's adultery. We're told specifically in the spring, that would mean in Israel after the latter rains, after the crops had been planted, when it was customary at that time in the Middle East, for a king to go out and resume the battle. In the spring at the time when kings go out to battle. And then there's a little three-letter word that I have circled, but. It's one letter in Hebrew. It's a little conjunction because God is drawing a contrast. But David stayed at Jerusalem. Instead of taking his responsibilities seriously as a king, he let Joab go out and do all the dirty work. He decided to stay home, and in the process, he was neglecting his God-given leadership. If he had been out carrying his duty as the head of the forces, he would not have found himself in the situation that we're reading about today. He should have been laying siege to this city called Ramon, and instead he's laying siege to Bathsheba, or Ravah, or Rabbah. Look at verse 2. Now, when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house. The King James renders it interesting. He came off his bed at evening tide. And I like that because evening tide is a beautiful old English word that describes that period of time from late afternoon into the early evening, right in that in-between time. So David's not out in the battle. He's getting up off the bed when he should have been about getting ready to go to bed. 
He had been sleeping his way through the afternoon. We live here on the coast, and we speak of a tide change. This is evening tide. Late afternoon going into early evening, and he should have spent his day differently. Audrey's grandmother, Maud, used to always say, an idle mind and idle hands are the devil's workshop. Now, you've heard that before, and that's so true. She was absolutely right. Idleness often opens the door to sin. And I believe there's a lesson here that we can learn from David, that idle time will typically end up giving birth to sinful time. When we're not on the path of the giving duties that God has ordained for us, then we are opening ourselves up to do things that we shouldn't be doing. We're opening ourselves up into the path of temptation. And if you read the Torah and you read about the kings of Israel, you discover that there are two principal responsibilities that the king was given oversight for. He was given oversight over the harvest field so that the people of the nation would be provided for, and he was given oversight over the battlefield. And David is involved in neither. And listen, there are two fields that the New Covenant Christian is given oversight over. You are to be involved in the harvest field, and you are to be involved in the battlefield. And there's a problem. King David is not doing what he ought to be doing, so he ends up doing that which he ought not to be doing. You ought to be involved in the harvest field. You ought to be seeking to win people to Christ. You say, that's what we pay you to do, preacher. No, you don't pay me to win souls for you. Now, we'll work alongside and we'll make a good team by God's grace, but I can't win the people that God has brought into your sphere of influence. You have to take the initiative in whatever means God gives you to expose them to the plan of salvation. And the uh, church is not described as some big love boat. It's a battleship. We're in a battle that we are called to wage war in. So here's David, because he's in a sin of omission, he ends up committing a sin of commission. It's what precisely we studied in the book of James chapter 4. Therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. And it is usually sins of omission that gets more Christians into sins of commission. Because you see, if you're doing that which you ought to be doing, then you cannot be doing that which you should not be doing. Take some mother. She has little children. She ought to be home raising those children. She's called to be a worker at home. Pastor, you're so old-fashioned. You're about the only preacher who I hear speaking like that. That's because most preachers are compromised in our day. Look, my hat is off to any woman who has to go out and work to help put food on the table. But you cannot read Scripture and come up with a different plan. God's plan is that the mother is to be the key nurturer during the day. That doesn't mean she can't be creative and earn money from her home, but she is to have principal responsibility over those children. And a lot of pastors can't preach that because they've got their wives out working because they're greedy or they've opened up daycare centers to promote the very thing that God doesn't want them to promote. So what happens? Well, number one, uh, a woman is a weaker vessel. So she will come home after a day's work, typically more tired than a man will. But because God has created into her spiritual DNA a nurturing dimension, job number two will kick in. 
And she'll do everything that she can to make that home what it needs to be and to provide for those children. And after a while, she gets more and more tired, and after a while, they begin to snap at each other. And they're not getting along, and these walls begin to build up. And she goes to work, and there's a fellow there who's kind and considerate. He never sees her without makeup on and in rollers, and he always sees her at her best at her freshest hours, typically. And she begins to listen to that fellow. Before long, they're infatuated with one another, and adultery kicks in. You see, if she was doing that which she ought to be doing, she would not be doing that which she ought not to be doing. David should have been with his soldiers in the battle leading the way, but he's not. In the middle of the day, he's got all this idle time on his hand. Look, there's a legitimate purpose for rest. We all need it. Jesus said, let us go away to a quiet place. And you're foolish if you work 24-7. God gave us an example. In six days, he did his work, and in one, he rested. But let me tell you why. Take teenagers in this generation. Why are so many teenagers caught up in the mess they are caught up in? Why are 80% of the so-called evangelical teenagers, when they get to college, they are rejecting the faith and they want nothing to do with Holy Scripture? Well, I'll tell you, it's during the formational years that many of them have all this idle time on their hand, and their heart is not being guarded. And so, you know, they're hanging around, they're surfing the web, they're on their cell phone talking to friends, they're spending all this time on social media where nothing wrong with those things technically. But some of them don't know how to work yet. There's so many children, teenagers in America who don't know how to work. Listen, you teach your children how to work not when they're 15, but when they're five. You teach them how to earn a dollar, save a dollar, tie the dollar. That needs to begin very, very young. Look, by the time I was 12, I had a full-blown lawn mowing business. There was a mower out in the back shed, and I said, Dad, this mower has been broken. If I fix it, will you let me use it for a lawn mowing service? And he said, yes. And so I got my friend Stephen St. Martin, and together we fixed that lawnmower. And I went to Mrs. Cutting's house, and Mrs. Cutting, she was 80 years old. I said, Mrs. Cutting, I will cut your grass for free. And if you like the work I do, maybe we could negotiate a price. And I cut the grass, and I did, by God's grace, a great job. And she said, I'll pay you $5 a week. Before long, I had a full-blown lawn cutting business, and in the winter, those became my snow customers where I shoveled their walks. Hey, listen, some of these teenagers say, I can't find a job. Hey, we we got a problem in America. We can't fill basic positions. The Atlanta airport yesterday put a crowd for 3,000 workers. They can't get people to take suitcases off of the the belts to put them on the, you know, the, the thing that comes out and pops up so you can get, I mean, everything's a mess. People, why work? Why work when you can get a double bonus from the government? (laughs) Collect unemployment twice over. Why work when you don't have to pay your rent? Hey, look, my hat is off to people who are struggling. But I see all these landlords who, they can't make their payments. Why? Because the government says you don't have to pay your rent. 
Not yet, anyway. We have a culture that fosters laziness and idleness. And so as soon as we get to college and we get out into the business world, what's one of the goals that are set for us? Retirement. Hey, look, there's nothing wrong with retiring. And you may come to a point where you physically are not able or your company wants you to retire, but you don't retire from life. I thank God for many of the older adults in our church who have not retired from life. It's just a redefinition of what God wants you to do. It's a change of job descriptions. So here's David's carelessness. It's rooted in idleness. Secondly, David's carelessness was rooted in impulsiveness, in impulsiveness. Look now, if you will, as we continue to read in verse 2. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful in appearance. Now, God unfolds a historical record from David's perspective, because 2 Samuel is the biography of David. He could have certainly have unfolded it from Bathsheba's perspective. She knew, obviously, the proximity of David's courtyard, uh, of her courtyard to David's uh, castle, his, uh, his home. We've stood in the very place where David's home was, and you look down a hill, he's up on a high spot, and even to this day, there's houses built below, and you could see what he would have seen, how he had a full-blown view of the homes below, and of course, kings in that day, and people in that day. During this time of year, they would go out onto their roofs in the evening, because that's when these famous breezes that Jerusalem is known for would be blowing. And she knew that David would be out there and that she would be in full view of the bathwater. He would be in full view of the bathwater. She probably has some central desires that are going on here. But again, the focus is not on her, but on King David. And King David makes some choices. First and foremost, he decides to stare. He doesn't take Job's advice where he bounces the eyes. He lets his eyes linger. The Hebrew verb where it says here, he saw, he saw a woman bathing. It's in a particular stem that meant he kept seeing, he focused. So when he stumbles across this incident, he should have walked back into the palace, but instead he stays out on the roof and he keeps looking. And before long, what he saw, he sought after This strong warrior king had taken off his spiritual armor. In the New Testament, Paul reminds us in Ephesians 6.11, put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Likewise, Paul tells to Timothy, his son in the faith, in his last will and testament, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. So let's ask a question. Why would David take off his spiritual armor? Why did he let his guard down? It's obvious as you read the chapters before this, because he had had so many victories. And so he had thought, you know, we're, we're on the winning side. Things are great. I don't even need to go out in the battle. I'll let General Joab handle this. And many times when you've had victory after victory after victory in your Christian life, you can begin to think that you're invincible. You may think that you're so strong that you would not fall. And we have a great track record of people in the Scripture who had had consistent victory, and then a fall came. 
Why? Because they let their guard down. And so David, he doesn't fall at the point of his weakness. King David falls at the point of his strength. He's known as a man of integrity. And so he writes this in Psalm 26. Listen to these words. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity, and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Examine me, O Lord, and try me. Test my mind and my heart, for your loving kindness is before my eyes, and I have walked in your truth. Taking another man's wife was the last thing that would have crossed his mind. You've heard me say it, I've said it for three decades, that an unguarded strength is potentially a double weakness. An unguarded strength is a double weakness. God may give you some strength in your heart, and when you leave it unguarded, you become a target for the evil one. Think about it. Take Peter, for instance. What was his great strength? He was brave. And there in the upper room on the night when Christ is going to be betrayed, he said, Lord, I don't know about the rest of these guys, but I'm willing to go to prison for you. I'm even willing to die for you. And he took out a sword he had acquired that day. And when they go to arrest the Lord after Jesus, of course, put over a thousand men on their backs, he cut off a man's ear there in the Garden of Gethsemane. But he ultimately falls at the point of his strength. And so when that little servant girl a short time later says, you're one of his, no, no, and three times calling down curses, he denies the Lord. Even so, here's King David. He got careless. He first was idle, and then he was impulsive. And what you find here in the first two verses are all the ingredients for sin. When you have an unexpected opportunity mixing with an unguarded strength, you have everything needed for sin. I mean, she's very beautiful, the text says. It's only said of three women in all of Scripture. She was very beautiful. She's bathing. And here's David. He is unguarded in his heart because he had gotten idle, and that led him to be impulsive. And so he begins to stare, and he falls into temptation. Jesus taught us to pray, Lord, deliver us from evil. Keep us from temptation. That's not just some chin music. That's something that we need to be sensitive to and pray about. And so I wonder, some of us this morning, if we've let our guard down. Some of us sitting there this morning, we, we have let our guard down. Some of you are listening, you've let your guard down. You're not what you used to be. You've kind of let your heart get cold. You used to come to church and you had a passion to be here. You used to sing hymns to God throughout the day. You used to read your scripture and memorize the Bible. And you just walked with God and you looked for opportunities to tell people about Jesus. But that's past. And your heart's grown cold. And here's David. He never, ever, ever, ever would have dreamed that he would do what is recorded of him in this chapter. But he got careless, and he began to coast. To listen again to today's sermon, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. Remember that you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program Avoiding Moral Failure 021. 
Search the Scriptures is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you would like to help sustain this ministry, click the Give button on our app or at searchthescriptures.org. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we continue to search the Scriptures.